The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, a fellow colleague and peer, a fellow registered dietitian, Mr. Andy Bellotti. He's a Las Vegas-based nutritionist with a plant-centric and whole food focus who takes an interest in food politics, deceptive food marketing, sustainability, and social justice. You may have seen some of his work published on such popular food-centric publications, including Grist, The Huffington Post, Food Safety News, and Civil Eats. He is also one of the co-founders of a very interesting organization called Dietitians for Professional Integrity, and it's a group that advocates for ethical and socially responsible partnerships within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and as we have our conversation, you'll learn why that's so important. But Mr. Bellotti, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Well, you know, it's very interesting to me. So you have a bachelor's degree in journalism, and then you went back to school. You got a master's in clinical nutrition from NYU. Yes. Tell me why you went from journalism to nutrition. Yeah, you know, the the timing of things is so interesting. So I graduated from NYU with my bachelor's in journalism in the spring of 2004, and it was I want to say literally the week that Supersize Me premiered, at least in New York. I don't think it was national yet. But I went to see Supersize Me because at the time I was starting to get into nutrition, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as fully vested as I am now, obviously. And in that documentary, they actually touch on issues of not just nutrition, but food politics and the lobbying and, you know, how industry shapes narratives of health and it was this moment where I kind of realized that that documentary touched on my mutual interest of nutrition, but also investigative journalism. What was also happening is that I graduated with this degree, but I didn't want to go the traditional journalism route of, you know, covering a beat for a newspaper and then just writing about, say, you know, I don't know, a fire that happened in an apartment complex. So I was in this weird crossroads where I didn't really want to go into journalism per se. And so what I did in the meantime was I got a full-time administrative job at NYU. One, because I needed to, you know, at that point I had graduated and needed to pay bills, but also because one of the benefits of working at NYU as a full-time employee is that you got tuition remission. And so there I am a few months into my job and I figure, well, I might as well take this opportunity and just go for nutrition, knowing full well that it was going to take me a long time, A, because I was doing it part-time, because I couldn't go to school full-time, I was working full-time, and also because with a journalism background, before I could do a single graduate-level course, I had to do uh, 15 undergraduate prerequisites. But it all kind of stemmed really from Supersize Me. Interesting. It's a great film, if any of our listeners haven't seen it. 
I'm trying to think of the producer's name. Morgan Spurlock. Thank you, Morgan Spurlock, yeah. yes. That's a very interesting intro into how you got into the field of nutrition. What I think we share is this fascination for media messaging and how it has infiltrated not only the Dietetic Association, but many health associations. And you gave a wonderful webinar for your fellow RDs just a few months ago, and it had to do with how food industry partnerships really influence our profession and how the public thinks about food and nutrition. And you start off with a couple of very interesting slides looking at an American Medical Association endorsement of Baby Ruth candy bars. So this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, and the reason why I start with that image is because, and that was complete serendipity in the sense that a year or so ago, my parents were visiting me here in Las Vegas, and we went to uh, Boulder City, which has a bunch of antique stores, and I'm not really much of an antique person, so it's just kind of milling around, and I came across that box of Babe Ruth uh, candy bars, and originally what attracted me to it is that I just have like this semi-passion or hobby for vintage advertising, but it wasn't until I looked closer that I saw the American Medical Association seal. And the reason why I start with that image is because when I put that up, most people either chuckle or they, you know, or, or they look at it and think in the same way that doctors were kind of advertising tobacco back in the 50s. That's right. And my whole point is, this might seem funny, but it's not a relic. This is still happening. Granted, we don't have seals of approval on, on Snickers bars or on Baby Ruth candy bars, but we do still have health organizations parroting industry talking points, subtly or passively condoning certain products that are really not healthy. So I use that to say that it's actually still happening in many ways, just perhaps not as overtly. Well, and I think that you also bring up some very important things that happen when you have these industry partnerships. And I'd like to talk a little bit about those. For example, when there's an industry partnership that often buys silence, can you give me an example? Yeah, there's many interesting cases. The ones that come to mind the most have to do with soda taxes, where you have organizations like there was one group called Save the Children, which was supporting the idea of soda tax, taxes in several states. And magically, once they got grants from PepsiCo and Coca-Cola to help their overall organization, you know, administratively or with other efforts, suddenly they found that soda taxes just really weren't worth advocating for anymore. And you also saw it with Philadelphia, where at the time, you know, Mayor Nutter was talking about possibly having a soda tax that would help raise funds for health and wellness campaigns. And again, industry got involved and through a front group donated some money to the children's hospital. And again, soda taxes kind of were suddenly off the table. And what I always say too is that the food industry or well any industry, whether it's, you know, oil, tobacco, food, what have you, these are not amateur hour productions. They know exactly what they're doing. They have the capacity, the ability, and the money to hire the best of the best. So this is not just them kind of doing trial by fire. These are well-honed techniques that they know work. Exactly. And I think it's like human nature. 
where we don't want to bite the hand that feeds us. Well, absolutely, because I think it, part of it is ingratiating themselves with organizations so that, for example, if the issue of soda comes up, well, if PepsiCo and Coca-Cola have given you a half a million dollars to help with, I don't know, with a wellness campaign, they go from being kind of this faceless company to now being one of your partners without whom you might not be able to do X, Y, and Z. And I think it's only, as you say, it's only fair in human nature that that does affect judgment. We're all human. Right. Exactly. Okay. You mentioned front groups, and I think that's really important to talk about because, you know, even I, I see some of the titles, and I remember when I was a young dietitian receiving information from, say, the Calorie Control Council, not really knowing who was behind that group, but, you know, the name sounded good, and the International Food Information Council, the Center for Consumer Freedom. I mean, a normal thinking person would not find any fault with those names. How do we go about investigating who owns or who's behind some of these groups? And why should we even think to question them? Yeah, and you know, that's something that I have in common with you as well. I remember when I first started my nutrition academic career, I first heard of the International Food Information Council, IFIC. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I remember reading their, their brochures at the Academy's uh, conference and reading their website, and I actually thought, wow, I, I want to work for these people. Right. You know, they really know what they're doing. Because at the time, I still kind of wasn't as aware as to, you know, how industry affects all of this. And now, of course, the reason why I like to talk about front groups is exactly because they are so good at hiding, at just inserting certain messages within a narrative that makes a lot of sense. And that's why front groups are so tricky, because there's a lot that they say that from a scientific standpoint is correct. You know, when they talk about, say, how the physiology of weight loss, it's not like they're making things up, but what ends up happening is that front groups, many of which are funded by the likes of Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Nestle, Mars, McDonald's, what have you, they end up inserting messages along the lines of maybe how when they're talking about hydration, they'll mention that all liquids contain hydration and soda is actually 90% water. So there's nothing wrong with including soda as part of your hydration needs. So it's those little tiny subtle messages that get through that are a way of you know either normalizing certain products that health advocates recommend people consume less of or they're kind of doing damage control for industries that are repeatedly coming under fire from health advocates. Exactly. In fact, you shared a quote from Katie Bain, who is the president of Sparkling Beverages for Coca-Cola North America, and her quote is, What our drinks offer is hydration. That's essential to the human body. We don't believe in empty calories. We believe in hydration. So that's exactly right with regard to the way the narrative or the messages are spun. Yeah, and this idea that they don't believe in empty calories, well, the thing is that it's, not, it's like gravity. It's not a matter of belief. <laughs> I mean, empty calories are a real thing in the sense that, you know, foods or, or beverages that contain zero nutrition and only offer calories are known as empty calories. That's not even up for debate. So I, I chose that quote on purpose because 
I think it's, it takes a lot of chutzpah to, to claim that you don't believe in empty calories when that's just a scientific fact. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, Mr. Bellotti, the way I see consumers being led down this path and believing these, these messages and this spin. And I'll give you another example, which I know that you've brought forth as well, and that has to do with this balance of exercise, you know, calories in versus calories out. And maybe we used to believe that a calorie was a calorie, but I think with current research, you'd really have to have your head in the sand not to realize that some calories from some sources are more damaging than others. But what does the American Beverage Association, for example, say if all consumers exercised, did what they had to do, the problem of obesity wouldn't exist? But if you look at how long a person would have to exercise in order to burn off, say, a standard 12 or even 20-ounce soft drink, you realize that there just aren't enough hours in the day. Yes. And furthermore, one thing I like to say is that I'm a dietitian. I'm not a weight loss issue in the sense that health is not just about weight loss. We have to get away from this idea that it's all about weight loss because we know that different foods – offer different health benefits, how they affect. I mean, talk about, you know, the whole gut flora issue. I think that's going to, I mean, I feel like the research on that is just really starting over the next 10, 15, 20 years. We're going to find out even so much more on how the composition of foods affects our gut flora and what that means for our health. So can you technically lose weight eating nothing but McDonald's? Of course you can. I mean, we've all seen the sensationalistic headlines and news stories about somebody who ate pizza for a year and lost weight just because they cut back on calories. But what's missing from that conversation is the health impacts of just eating junk food that is lowering calories. That that defeats the purpose. Exactly. And listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Mr. Andy Bellotti. He is a registered dietitian. He's based in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he focuses on a plant-centric and whole food focus. And why I wanted him to join us today is because of his awareness of media messages and how that tweaks the way we think about food. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about your philosophy on diet, because I think it is certainly in line with the new dietary guidelines, and that is you have a plant-centric approach. Tell me what that means to you. The reason why I use plant-centric is because I think what that entails is anything from actual veganism all the way including vegetarianism and also including uh, omnivorism that relies mostly on whole plant-based foods for sustenance in the sense that I'm not in the school of thought that if you're eating, I don't know, sardines or, or salmon, that that somehow is damaging to your health. I think the idea is that if you are eating animal products, they should be the exception to the rule to say I, I like to operate from like an 80-20 standpoint where I suggest that you know 80% of your foods be whole food plant-based and then 20%, I feel, if you want to eat animal products, if that's, if that's what it's going to take for you to increase your the amount of plants you eat, I support that. And the reason why I say that is because my full-time job here in Las Vegas is I'm a dietitian in, in corporate wellness. And I work at a hotel casino, and I am the health coach for the employees. And 
one interesting thing that happened is that the health coach who I replaced was vegan. Now, I'm vegan as well, but the health coach who I replaced was, I was told, very judgmental and combative to the point of telling people that unless they ate 100% vegan, they were never going to get healthy and they were never going to lose weight. So I walked into a situation where people had a very negative perception of the health coach because the person before me was so adamant on her own identity and kind of projecting down to everybody else. And I think it's important to meet people where they are, definitely challenge them, but not make them feel judged. Maybe we should let our listeners know what it means to be a vegan. Mm -hmm. Vegan simply means that you don't eat animal products, but also no animal byproducts, and that includes dairy, eggs, and in most cases, honey as well. So tell me something. I'm curious to know what some of the challenges are among the clients that you see. You know, I think what's great about interviewing a a fellow registered dietitian, especially somebody like yourself who has a clientele where you hear from patients and clients regularly about what some of their challenges are, what do you see there in Las Vegas? How does that reflect what's going on in the United States? Well, what I really like about my job is that being at a casino or in a hotel, I get to coach everybody from the executives all the way to housekeeping and kitchen staff. So my clients run the entire gamut. I have people who have very little health literacy to people who are super informed. I have people who are making $25,000 a year and people who are making five or six or you know ten times that which I think is really great because I really get to see a whole variety. And what I see a lot, and the reason why I'm so passionate about food industry deception is because I encounter it, I see the consequences of that in my practice daily. People who come in here thinking that a Nutri-Grain bar is healthy because it's just made with real fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are eating refined grains that have you know, a dusting of fiber on it, I think they're eating whole grains. So... I see how industry's misinformation affects the health of people who I coach, and that's why I'm so adamant on on talking about that. Right. So are there areas of confusion that you would like to lay to rest? Yes. I can't believe how I still have people fearing nutrients. I either have people who are carb-phobic and then people who are fat-phobic. And what I always use as an opportunity is to, I want to take away the fear of nutrients because we need nutrients, we need proteins, fat, and carbohydrates. And I like to use that as an opportunity to talk about choosing whole, minimally processed versions of carbs and fats in the sense that I tell people, well, you know, Skittles are fat-free. That does not make them a healthful choice. And almonds are high in fat, but they're actually healthful. So I'd like to use that as an opportunity to discuss how there shouldn't be a fear of nutrients. You just need to focus on whole, minimally processed foods that offer nutrition and that will keep you healthy. Okay, let's talk about access. Now, I've been to Las Vegas, Nevada, and I know there is a a Whole Foods there, which is pricey for someone who's earning Mm $25,000 a year. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've ever found a farmer's market? I know that I've looked for them. There are a few. Okay. Are most people able to access the kinds of foods you recommend? 
Well, and the thing is that with most of my clients, what I like to do is get them to lower their intake of highly processed foods. Yeah. And one thing I like to do is bust this myth that that means you have to spend more money, for example, in the sense that, you know, if you're having two Pop-Tarts for breakfast every day, if you compare the cost of two Pop-Tarts for breakfast every day versus toasting whole wheat bread and putting some peanut butter on it and having some fruit, the Pop-Tarts end up being more expensive because a lot of what you're paying for is the convenience. So I like to demystify the idea that healthy eating takes a lot of time because it doesn't. The idea that it's super expensive. You know, I tell people brown rice, oats, beans, these are not expensive foods. And also, one thing that's very interesting is that, you know, I do coach quite a bit of Hispanic and Filipino clients, and they are the ones who are most likely to go to ethnic markets, local markets, where you can get produce for um, it just very affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, too, I, you've probably heard about the Latino paradox, right, where you've got a population that I think has largely a plant-based diet, um, you know, until they switch over to the American or the Western eating style, but they also have relationships, strong relationships around food. Yes, and that's why I think the difference between perhaps being a dietitian, say, at a hospital or, or maybe more of a formal outpatient setting is that here where it's health coaching, you have that ability and you're encouraged to also talk about the emotional side of eating. So a lot of times it's uh, people talking about how to navigate food within relationships where food is love and how you feel pressure to eat something that you don't. So I, I, I think when we talk about food, it's not just about you yourself individually with your fork and knife. It's also about looking at your environment and not just the neighborhood where you live and what's available, but the people who you live with. When you grew up, how was the context in which food was talked about? Because that affects your perception, absolutely. Right. If you were to compare some of the industry messages that are received regularly, and you were to create some of your own messages, you know, if you had access to several billboards around Las Vegas, what would you put on them? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure of actual, say, taglines, but in terms of the messaging, I think I would just give reasons as to why foods that maybe have been demonized unfairly are actually healthful. For example, you know, people who come in here and they tell me that they don't want to eat another carb. So I think I would use an opportunity to talk about why potatoes are healthy and why grains are healthy and why fruit is good for you. You know, I would definitely differentiate between eating fruit and drinking fruit because that's a conversation that I have with a lot of my clients. But there's a big difference between that. And I think I would also encourage cooking. You know, one thing that has really struck me is that a lot of times I see these articles in media about nutritionists' ideas on how to eat healthy at McDonald's, so on and so forth. Nobody, and I've been at this job for three years now, nobody once has come in here and asked me, can you give me some tips on how to eat healthy at McDonald's? The number one request I get is, can you give me some recipes of foods that I can make at home? Yeah. That's what people are seeking. Nobody here is asking me, how can I save 200 calories at McDonald's? Because they know it's not healthy. What they appreciate from me is, 
how they can empower themselves in their kitchen and make healthy food. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think one of the messages I see repeatedly in the media has to do with a reinforcement that we don't have time to cook. And I often step back then from a media literacy standpoint and say, who owns that message? It's the people who are producing ready-to-eat or ready-to-microwave foods. And one of my favorite lines is, fast food is neither. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, but I think your goal to get people to cook more and to realize with just a few small skills that are easily teachable, you can have dinner on the table in less time than it takes you to drive through, you know, a drive-through fast food restaurant. Yeah, and even, you know, a lot of people lately have gotten into, which I think is great, the whole crock pot situation, which a lot of people like because it cooks while you're out of your home. Right. And you come home to a home-cooked meal. Exactly. So I think it's about taking advantage of things like that and also just simple things like I'll give recipes for like roasted chickpeas where you just you get a can of garbanzo beans a little bit of olive oil, lemon juice, whatever spices you want. And, yeah, it takes 20 minutes to, to cook, 20, 25 minutes. But the prep time, I mean, it's like 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. What people really want is to cut back on prep time. They don't mind waiting for something to cook if it has to be not really attended, but it's the prepping that people are worried about. Yes, and I would even suggest that on the weekends they not actually use canned beans, but to go ahead and make them from scratch and soak them to avoid that bisphenol that's also in the canned foods. But that's probably another topic for another day. Very quickly, I want to get your opinion about the new dietary guidelines. Well, they're pretty interesting. You know, the Dietary Guidelines Committee is recommending that red and processed meats really be limited, which I think is a very important message. And it goes beyond just the sustainability piece, which I think is great that's being taken into account. They're talking from a nutrition standpoint. And also the message on on added sugar, which I think we're way overdue for some really potent messaging on what to cut our added sugar back to. That needs severe action because the amount of sugar that people are eating and drinking has just exploded over the past few decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was online and saw an industry, you know, sometimes how on different listservs there'll be an industry representative planted there to respond to, say, maybe a public health person. And when I promoted the idea of having an added sugar line on a food label, his response was, well, that's just too complicated for consumers. And I thought, that's an industry line. There's an example. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your time with me today, and I want to let everyone know that you have many perspectives to share, not only about a plant-centric diet, but also about food policies and food messaging from industry, defining big food and all of their tricks. But your smallbites.andybelotti.com website is a great source for all of your writing. Is that correct? Yeah, so I had the Small Bites blog for five years. I started in 2007, and then 2012, I kind of wanted to shift gears a little bit, and I didn't. I kind of felt that that particular cycle of daily blogging had to come to an end, but I kept all the archived posts, and that's also now where whenever I do some freelance writing or if I do an interview or, you know, a, a podcast like this, a radio show, I update 
the links there. So that way people can keep track of my latest writing on there as well. Well, that sounds great. Well, I want to thank you so much, Mr. Andy Bellotti, registered dietitian based in Las Vegas who focuses on whole foods and plant-based diet. We are going to have a link to your website, Mr. Bellotti. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank Mr. Bellotti for being my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure.